7.48 on the morning news. AHS, Alberta Health Services, announced that EMS uh, 911 dispatch services will be consolidated across the province, further improving patient care and fiscal efficiency. Uh, joining us to chat about this transition and what it means for patients is Chief Paramedic Darren Sandbeck. Good morning to you, Darren. Good morning, Andrew. And I, and I should clarify, I, I almost read it as fact, that that is the purpose behind it, to improve patient care and fiscal efficiency. What are your thoughts? Is this something that would do both? Uh, yes, it will do both, actually. Um, and patient safety, you know, is at the core of every decision we make at Alberta Health Services. So this consolidation will allow us to be uh, more efficient, um, allows better coordination of our resources, uh, you know, allowing EMS to send the nearest available ambulance, uh, regardless of any geographic or municipal boundaries. Um, and it, there's also a um, fiscal impact to this as well, as we'll save about $6 million by doing this. So, Darren, I know that Mayor Nahad Nenshi has been quite vocal about this. In fact, he was saying that it would certainly affect times, keeping it down. I believe the number is, and obviously this is your wheelhouse, 41 seconds uh, you know, to send a, a vehicle out that is needed in a time of emergency in the city of Calgary. Is, is, it, is it the case that it will slow times, or could we expect the same times with this consolidation? No, the times will be the same, um, Andrew. This this actually changes nothing from the caller's perspective. The existing um, dispatch processes and workflows that happen today um, will happen um, in the future. Essentially, um, it will just be a dispatch being done in a different location by AHS um, staff. The call transfers um, that occur today will occur. Those transfers are um, instantaneous. Um, and they'll just go to one of our dispatch centers. Okay, so can I think of it in terms, and I'm just trying to get a visual of this, mm-hmm. in, instead of, um, you know, from one city, like for the city of Calgary, fanning out to uh, one particular, you know, whether it's a fire fire station or an EMS dispatch, it would uh, go straight from a, a localized area to the one that was closest, not, not, a, not a local city one, but one that was stationed somewhere in the province. Sure. So let me try and uh, let me try and explain it. So today, what happens is a 911 call comes in. Mm-hmm. That call is taken by a 911 call taker. Mm-hmm. The the caller identifies that they need police, fire, or ambulance. Um, when that request is made, that 911 call taker, at the push of a button, transfers that call to that appropriate agency's dispatcher. So if they say ambulance, they push a button and the call gets transferred right now across the room to the EMS dispatcher. Okay. What will happen in the future is that 911 operator will push that same button. That okay. call will just be transferred to an AHS EMS dispatch center. Kind of cutting out a middle man or middle woman, so to speak, uh, but the same uh, speed, you figure. Same process. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I understand it's going to take some time. This is uh, not the flip of a switch. When do you expect this to be up and, up and running? So we've allowed um, 180 days or six months transition period, and you know we'll we'll work with our uh, municipal partners um, in those agencies in those four municipalities um, to ensure that the the transition is uh, seamless and um, and that is, everything goes as it's supposed to. So probably early next year or into 2021, is that right? Yeah, yeah, uh, 20 early 2021. Yeah. Early 2021. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it, Darren. Appreciate. It. Thank you for the opportunity. This is uh, Chief Paramedic uh, Darren Sandbeck that we've been speaking with. 8-11 on the morning news, and yesterday the UCP provided the province with an update on returning to school. 
Masks will be mandatory for all school staff and almost all students when they return in September. Those are grades 4 to grade 12. Also hearing about, you know, some hand sanitizer being provided to, to each school as well as some thermometers. Well, with her thoughts, we're joined now by NDP education critic Sarah Hoffman. Good morning to you. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, your initial thoughts when you heard about the uh, extra details for the September 1st return. Well, I think my main thought is that when parents uh, speak up and mobilize the government's starting to act, it's not uh, a significant move. It's basically $13 per student uh, for a couple of masks and uh, some hand sanitizer. But uh, it's you know better than what we had a few days earlier. And I think the government's starting to realize that uh, parents, uh, staff, students, and families have very serious concerns about safety and well-being this fall. And the government needs to do more to keep students safe. But you know, I guess mandating masks in the hallways and on buses is better than nothing, but definitely it's a long way from uh, some of the uh, other jurisdictions around the world that have been effective in reopening schools without having outbreaks. And the ones that have ignored uh, COVID and pretended that everything was normal certainly haven't. What's your takeaway from uh, the masks being mandatory for uh, the uh, grades 4 to 12 and not, uh, you know, uh, from kindergarten to, to, to grade 3? I know a number of different schools districts are responding with their own um, policies and some have said that you know K-3 students should wear them as well. I think it can be complicated when kids are crossing in the hallway and you're in a school that's kindergarten to grade six for example that half the kids will be wearing masks and the other half won't. Um, I think it's probably uh, a good idea to teach kids good uh, hygiene including mask wearing right now. We, If we can do anything to help uh, slow the spread we, we should be considering that. I think the the biggest key, though, is making sure we don't have overcrowded classrooms. It was already bad for learning before we had this uh, global pandemic, and now it's also dangerous in terms of public health to have, you know, on regular cases, 25, 30, or even 40 kids in a class. But Sarah, Sarah how, how, do, how do we avoid that? You know that a lot of these facilities obviously are in place. Um, what would you propose? For sure. So looking at what's happened in some other places around the world, including what Ontario is doing for high school, um, Number one, you need to hire more staff. You need to hire more teachers and more custodians, custodians for keeping our school clean and sanitized, um, and uh, teachers so that you can split uh, classes into smaller configurations. And um, nobody's saying you need to double the number of teachers. You know, I think that we should at least uh, try to get up to having class sizes of 15 with teachers in front of all of those kids. But um other places around the world have done things like uh, have additional staff in uh, usually teachers, but if they can't have teachers, they've looked at having educational assistants with video conferencing so that they're still connected to a teacher at all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I know that we're, not, we're used to seeing kids go to traditional schools for, for schooling, but they've done things like reach out to other organizations, libraries, rec centers, places of worship to be able to split kids into smaller groupings because public health has shown that uh, if you keep two meters of distance and if you aren't around uh, too many folks, uh, right now we have 15 as our cohort limit, that you're able to slow the spread much more effectively than when people are cramped together and, and breathing on each other. What have you heard? I'm, I'm sure some parents, uh, you know, there's better not chance they reached out to you yesterday. What, w- what was the reaction? Uh, they're still 
deeply concerned. The vast majority of parents that I've heard from, and I've heard from tens of thousands of parents, uh, really want to ensure that they've got uh, enough space around their students in the class and enough space on the bus and enough space in the hallway. And this government is pretending that the budget they brought forward in the spring before COVID is good enough. And already that budget was seeing cuts to the amount of money each student gets, which means less support, less staff, less cleaning. And now they want us to to deal with that. Uh, You know, we have 740,000 students, about 90,000 staff, and all of them go home to families at the end of the day. So that really uh, is putting a lot of people at risk if we don't get this right. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. That is NDP education critic Sarah Hoffman, and uh, we love to have the different views on the program. That's why we had, uh, you know, Sarah on. And uh, you know what? I, I, I do. I'm not going to lash out because the opposition is the opposition. But it, in the end, yeah, I mean, we can talk budgets all day. We can talk about classroom sizes. But the fact remains, school is uh, the reentry is 26 days from now. The buildings are going to be the buildings. The class sizes, unfortunately, are going to be the class sizes. These are discussions that are ongoing and have gone on for for how many years about class sizes and and, and about funding toward education. We have to work with what we have right now. And some people won't be comfortable. I've got this text in right now that says, no one has even suggested that the students help cleaning the schools. They can learn coping skills by doing this and participate in their safety. So this person's saying, you know what? Maybe the students can roll up their sleeves. We want them to be safe. Absolutely, we want them to be safe. There's no question here. This is another one here that says, if the Alberta government is going to keep moving the goalposts, my child will be staying home. I will not allow my child to be brainwashed and indoctrinated into the mask cult. I beg to differ because the masks, if we can bring down that COVID-19 number, like we we did see over a four-day period through the weekend, I'm all on board for that. Uh, But, uh, you know, what are your thoughts if you're a parent? 403-974-8255 is our text line. Right now, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. 7.09 on the morning news. And every month we join the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science to discuss all the great uh, conservation work our zoo is involved with around the globe, in fact. This week he teased us with this nugget. Conservation refugees, their lifeboats... And an approaching hurricane. Okay, we are going to get those all joined together and the dots connected. We're joined now by the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager. Good morning, Dr. Morenschlager. Yes, good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good, good. You know, it's it's interesting because I, I do love how you, you, you put a few words together for us and we, we try to tie them together, which you do so skillfully well in about six minutes. So do you want to start with conservation refugees? Yeah, exactly. So basically, um, in collaboration with the Zoological Society of London and collaborators in Belgium and the U.S. and from Guam, we've written a publication called Extinct in the Wild Species' Last Stand. And it's in a leading scientific journal that's, in fact, called Science. And it's something that's really uh, dear to my heart. It's about species that I see as the ultimate conservation refugees. They're species that can no longer live in the wild, Mm -hmm. but they still do exist under human care in zoos. Um, or in aquariums or botanical gardens, and they need science to solve the problems that are out there so that we can take courageous action to bring them back. And I'd just love to give you a couple of examples of me kind of encountering these kinds of refugees. Okay. Yeah, so one of them was in 2016 in Hawaii, I had the opportunity to learn from an indigenous tribe 
about work they were doing to help restore uh, endangered plants. And for them, it wasn't just about plants. It was actually meaningful because they associated different plants with different gods. So restoring the plants would mean restoring these uh, sacred connections too. Mm-hmm. So one of these leaders, one of their leaders toured me around their greenhouse and um, and he was searching around for some of their most endangered plants and he came back and he put a small pot into my right hand uh, containing one of the smallest ferns that I'd ever seen. And then he said, you know, there's 14 little stems in the wild and the rest of the world population was right there in my hand. Wow. It, and it just blew my mind, and and it really raised my interest in terms of how many species might be this close to extinction. Then this uh, this February, actually, I was in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, at the Royal Botanical Gardens, and I saw a Franklinia tree, which is a tree with beautiful white flowers that used to be in Georgia in the United States, but it's also gone now uh, in the wild. So again, we need to figure out what the things are in the wild that needs to be solved to put them back, right? But it, it isn't just about plants, it's about animals too. A lot of animals, actually. Um, so a couple more was, one of them is on a blue-tailed skink. So in 2018, I helped organize an international conservation conference in Chicago, uh, where I also helped provide training for governments and academics and conservation groups in conservation translocations. And, and there we actually launched a, a task force to help extinct the wild species. Part of that had to do with an endangered reptile, this one, the blue-tailed skink, not to be confused with a skunk, all right? <laughs> it's, it's actually a small sort of gecko-looking reptile with a bright blue, beautiful shimmering tail. And it lives on just one island off of Australia called Christmas Island. But an accidentally introduced species, the wolf snake, has wiped them out in the wild, and it's currently impossible to get rid of these snakes. But Taronga Zoo in Australia still has these skinks, right? So basically, again, one's trying to figure out, you know, how to solve these problems uh, to be able to put the skinks back. Now, a last one is one I've talked to you about before, which is the Guam kingfisher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's this beautiful uh, bird native to Guam with a copper-colored chest and purple wings. It's, uh, it's also a profound spiritual value to the indigenous Chamorro people there. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 again, a snake is the bad guy in this an invasive snake called the brown tree snake was introduced. And now the bird has been extinct in the wild for over 30 years. So again, here there are only about 140 of them left, all in American zoos. And they're hard and expensive to keep and their numbers may be declining, but it, it's really critical that, that we... Um, you know, that they're taken care of because we're working with the U.S. government agencies right now to enable their release back into the wild of next year. So those are just some examples for you. Um, but now I come back to the lifeboat. Yeah, what, yeah, the lifeboat is to link this together. Exactly. So in, in a way, you see that these zoos and botanical gardens are the ultimate lifeboats, right? It, and it's never as clear as in cases like this. Basically, if those lifeboats aren't there, then those species will not be there. And, and these organizations are currently carrying 77 species that are extinct in the wild and 54 others that may no longer have any living relatives in the wild. And uh, and if these lifeboats go down, these organizations will be the species that need them. It's just crystal clear, right? Mm-hmm. But they're facing a hurricane now uh, in terms of COVID-19. And, and it's sort of indirect, uh, but what it is is that as many of these organizations are, are shut or 
running uh, way below cap- capacity around the world, and such as even we are at the Calgary Zoo, has dramatic impact on the finances for these programs. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and it, it really scares me because um, because in some cases, some of these species are really, you know, hard to take care of and, um, or very expensive to take care of. So I'm really worried that, um, you know, bad impacts on the finances are going to ultimately perhaps cause the extinction of these species. So part of what we wanted to do in this publication is to raise the flag on this and to say, look, these organizations need help because otherwise these species, more clear than any other species, uh, are, are going to be in trouble. But we still have the ability to help the organizations and the species, and we just need to be serious about it. Um, what, what can we do? Is this uh, the kind of thing that you can, A, donate, and B, if we're going to the Calgary Zoo, I know I know that the doors are open. It, it might be a different experience, but is that the kind of thing we can do? Yeah, that's that's so crucial. You know, really crucial for us, and um, just to to help, obviously, to engage with us to learn about um, the species and the ecosystems around the world that need our help. But but really, it just but just by coming, it helps to support our organization because. One of the things that's really fundamental is we have a global leadership role, actually, in terms of returning these kinds of species back to the wild. We work with organizations all over the world in terms of providing advice and and, and such. So we really, uh, you know, appreciate everybody's support, support of the Calgary Zoo, support of our wildlife conservation programs to make it possible uh, to provide the amazing experiences that we give here, but actually to make possible the incredible effects that, have, that we have around the world to help species that are precious and that need our help, especially now more than ever. And like you say, it's not too late, but action has to be taken. That's it, exactly. We can do it all together. We can do it all together. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, nice catching up with you, Dr. Morenslager. Thank you so much, Andy. Have a good week. That is Dr. Axel Morenschlager, the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. We call him the Nature Doctor on the morning news. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master plan community. We just made it up to the northeast Rundlehorn Drive at 52nd Street. Looks like the collision cleared just as we arrived on scene. Over in the southwest, there is still an ongoing sinkhole. The westbound Southland Drive is shut down between Elbow Drive and 14th. Your best alternate route to avoid that is probably to take Anderson Road or Heritage Drive. Over on Glenmore Trail, uh, seeing a little bit of east and westbound volume still over at 24th Street Southeast. Uh, eastbound drivers especially are facing some glare from the sun. And taking a look at Deerfoot Southbound, seeing about a 20-minute drive from Airdrie down to Memorial. Already earning PC optimal points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SO and mobile stations. Visit bcoptimum.ca for details. From the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. With airplane travel way down, this has turned out to be the summer of road trips. Fortunately, Canada has some of the most pretty epic drives to choose from, and travel website Globe Guide has compiled a list of the 10 best road trips in our nation. From west to east, Vancouver Island, lots to see and do. The interior BC with wine country, our Rocky Mountains here in Alberta, and even stretching to the other side of the country with the beautiful coastline of the Maritimes. Tamara Elliott from GlobeGuide.ca joins us this morning to share some details about some of those road trips that are closest to home. Good morning, Tamara. Good morning, Andrew. Well, let's start, Tamara, with the Okanagan, which is especially popular with Calgarians in the summer months. 
Absolutely. And the Valley is about a seven-hour drive from Calgary and includes spots like Kelowna, Penticton, and Osoyoos. And what I love is it's a really great option for the entire family because there's so much to do, especially if you like to be active. So there are plenty of beaches, of course. They have great golfing, water sports, and bike trails. Vernon actually has some really advanced mountain biking if you want to really, you know, test yourself there. And one that I like is called the Myra Canyon Trestles. That one's just outside of Kelowna where you bike through a gorgeous steep canyon along the Kettle Valley Railway. So that's a really good option for families. Uh, of course, the Okanagan, also famous for its wineries. And what I love is how unique they are. So, for example, the tasting room at Road 13 Vineyards in Oliver, um, it's actually inside a castle. So it's pretty impressive. And in Kelowna, there's one called Frequency that has a music recording studio inside. And uh, over at Summerhill Pyramid Winery in Kelowna as well, they actually have an entire replica of a giant pyramid right out front of the tasting room. Yeah, very cool stuff. Well, here's one I've done before, the Calgary to Vancouver drive along the Trans-Canada. It's, it's a long one, but a great road trip this time of the year. Yeah, and this one passes through some of the country's most impressive national parks, including Banff, Yoho, and Glacier. As you mentioned, it takes about 11 hours, pretty long. So what I suggest is you break up the drive by stopping in at the great places along the way, like Kamloops is about the halfway mark, and that's a great desert city, lots of great golfing there. Uh, there's, of course, mountain towns like Golden and Revelstoke. Or uh, closer to Vancouver, you could stop and go for a soak in the Harrison Hot Springs. So once you make it to Vancouver, of course, there is so much to do there. I suggest uh, exploring fun spots in the city like Yale Town. You could cycle around Stanley Park. You could go to the beach um, or maybe check out the breweries on Granville Island. And uh, one other thing about that is I would recommend, if you have time, is continuing on to Whistler. So there you've got the Sea to Sky Highway, which is also one of Canada's best road trips. It's only a two-hour drive from Vancouver, and there you'll see the Howe Sound, you've got the mountains, and Shannon Falls, which is BC's third highest waterfall. Good stuff. Finally, a great one close to home. Uh, saving the best for last because, yeah, we might just not have a, a ton of days, but the Icefields Parkway, something you should check out. If you're if you're in Alberta, you have to check it out. Oh, definitely. And we're so lucky to have this one in our backyard. In my opinion, it's one of the world's most unique road trips and uh, not, not too long of a drive, as you mentioned, so that's nice. So the parkway goes from Banff National Park to Jasper, and some great stops along the route are Bow Lake, um, gorgeous reflections there of the mountains in the lake, uh, Peta Lake, that one is very Instagram famous because it's got that beautiful turquoise hue. And the Athabasca Falls near Glacier are really nice. Uh, this is, of course, where you'll also find the Columbia Ice Field. And you can head onto the Glacier Skywalk where there's a see-through glass platform that juts out nearly a 1,000 feet over the Sumwapta Valley. So pretty incredible views there. And technically, the drive only takes, a, a, you know, just a few hours to drive the length of the Ice Fields Parkway. But, of course, there's so many great stops along the way, I would suggest at least budgeting a full day. Good stuff. Thanks a ton, Tamara. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. You can find more details and the complete list of great Canadian road trips at globeguide.ca. It is 6.47. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. There's a sinkhole in the southwest, westbound Southland Drive between Elbow Drive and Fort all westbound traffic is closed down to the area. You're going to have to go down to Anderson to sneak around that. 
seeing a little bit of volume on north and southbound McLeod Trail, just north of Heritage Drive, where there is some ongoing bridge work in the area. Over on Deerfoot northbound, if you're coming into town, still takes only about 15 minutes from the Cranston Seaton area up to 17th Avenue. Southbound on Highway 2 from Airdrie, about 20 minutes from Yankee Valley Boulevard down to Memorial Drive. And if you're on southbound Pro Child Trail, now about 20 minutes from 12 Mile Cooley Road down to uh, Glenmore Trail. Popeye's Hot Honey Chicken is here. Two pieces of Popeye's Chicken drizzled with spicy sweet hot honey sauce and served with a regular side of biscuit for just $6.99. From the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen.